милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. In the late 1930s, the Soviet Union took in about 3,000 child refugees from the Spanish Civil War. These kids, aged roughly from 5 to 12 years old, were placed in boarding schools in Leningrad, Moscow, and elsewhere in the USSR. Their stay in this strange new land was supposed to be temporary, but fascist victory in the Spanish Civil War and the outbreak of World War II made them exiles for the foreseeable future. Now responsible for their rearing and education, Soviet officials and their Spanish minders transformed these children into hybrid Hispano-Soviets. They were steeped in patriotism for their two homelands and taught to emulate Spanish and Soviet heroes, scientists, soldiers, and artists. How did these Spanish children fare in the Soviet Union and live through the multiple traumas of their childhood? What did it mean to be Hispano-Soviet? What was their fate and memory of growing up as a refugee? Here's Carl Qualls with this little-known story. Carl Qualls is the John B. Parsons Chair in Liberal Arts and Sciences and Professor of History at Dickerson College. He's the author of From Ruins to Reconstruction, Urban Identity in Soviet Sevastopol After World War II. His new book is Stalin's Niños, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 1951, published by the University of Toronto Press. Here's Carl Qualls. So you have this new book, Stalin's Niños, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 51. And um, I'm always curious, uh, you know, people who do second books and they have a totally different topic. And, and I think this is one of these cases because your first book was on Sevastopol after World War II. So what got you interested in this the question of Spanish refugee children and, and uh you know, and the, and the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, well, actually, it was, it was complete serendipity. I mean, I will, I will say that um, although I love my colleagues who spend their entire careers on one thing, um, I just can't do that. I'm much too peripatetic. And so I want to do something that really hasn't been done. And so, you know, the, the book on Sevastopol was one of those. We didn't know anything about that at the time. And um, qu quite ironically, um, I found this topic, the, the Nino's book topic, in 1995, when I was in the archive trying to figure out if I could write a dissertation on Sevastopol's reconstruction, uh, I was wait, waiting in the archive one day for some materials to be developed, uh, and I was in uh, the little, little garf on Bereshkovka uh, and Odparezhne, uh, and I started flipping through the card catalog, and I saw this card. It's like homes for Spanish children and youth. It's like what what is this doing here? And so I ordered up a couple of files just because I was curious, and I just found this very rich. Um, information in these files of the organization that was created for these children and the boarding homes uh, for them. And so every time I went back to Moscow working on the Sevastopol uh, dissertation and then book, I just peek in and see if anybody had been using them and they hadn't. And I was getting close to finishing from ruins to reconstruction. And I said, okay, I, I need to start doing some bibliographic work and seeing if there's a, a secondary literature out there. Um, and there was, there was a secondary literature in Spanish, but it wasn't what I was trying to do is mostly based around um, oral histories, you know, 50 years, 60 years after the fact, and a small number of letters that we had from 37 to 39. Um, a couple had dabbled in the Russian archives, but not really. And there's like something like 2,500 boxes of materials. So it's a huge collection all in one place, which is the way I like to, to work, uh, at least initially, um, is to just dive into 
to something and find out if there's a story there. And, um, you know, that's the way the Shevastopol book came about. And the same way with this one is I just I let the archive lead me to the story. Uh, and then as I found different threads, then I, I chased them up in, in different locations, different countries, different archives, uh, different collections of oral histories and things like that. Um, and it was coming at a time. So this would be probably 2009, 2010. Uh, my son was now nine at that point and he started learning spanish in school at, at age three and i didn't know spanish <laughs> at that point and so i was trying to learn it well into my 40s and i said you know this would be really cool um for me to to learn spanish with my son um he quickly passed me and i had to catch up uh, but then my daughter uh, was also born she was two at that time and so i thought that, well this would be great right it is the 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 dominant second language in the united states as a citizen i should know spanish and here's this chance that I can do something with my kids and study kids and study a language that they're learning at the same time. So it was, it was just like a one, it was serendipitous, but there's also like this confluence of events that I found to be um, really interesting. Um, and then once I started looking at the materials, it was just unbelievably interesting, frankly, much more interesting than my first book, I think. <laughs> well, you know, you we all we've all like who've done research on one project, you you have this it's always, you know, you tend to have this experience where things kind of like in the journey, things jump out at you by accident. Um, and it's, it's really hard because you, I mean, I don't know about your personality, but my personality is like, I'd rather do the new thing, <laughs> right. And, and jump to, you know, this, this new topic that sounds fascinating because I know nothing about it, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, in, in that experience where you come across all sorts of, you know, potential nuggets of, future topics what what struck you about this it was it just a surprise was it the surprise that they were spanish children refugees in the soviet union or or what was it about that material as opposed to something else yeah well initially it was just the surprise that i'd, I'd never heard anything about this um but then after that you know, starting to read through the materials and thinking about when these when these kids were coming to the soviet union i mean this is a this is a huge moment 1937 1938 um you know where does this fit in with the the soviet story so again the kind of the spanish language uh, literature was all looking at it from the the spanish perspective, right? Who are these Spanish children? And they weren't really asking these questions about the Soviet Union and what this could tell us about the Soviet Union. And so I thought, you know, it, it's, a, it's a moment in time that we know a lot about, but we don't know anything about how this particular thing works. And so I thought, you know, like, again, like the, from uh, Ruins to Reconstruction book, the, you know, I, I like the case study approach. Uh, one, it's something that's, for me, it's, it's, it's manageable, it's containable because I will go down the rabbit hole very, very quickly if I take on something much larger. Um, but it's a case study that I think helps to illuminate some things about the the Soviet experience, as well as telling the story of these you know, roughly 3000 children who just have this horrific experience of of um, twice being dislocated by war and kind of living through the, the horrors of of the terror and the Second World War. Um, but then yet they come out like when I first started reading the the uh, few memoirs that we have, they would they would relate just these all these horrors that were going on in their life, and then the last sentence is, "But we were treated really well." I was like, "How how can this be?" You know, this really positive memory, but just some horrific experiences that they had to endure. Well, let's talk about some of the, their these experiences. So, first is I'd like to have you kind of paint a picture of the context in which these children from Spain were sent to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, and and how did they get there? I mean, in a real physical way, like how did they get from Civil War Spain to the Soviet Union in the late 1930s? And then how did they, you know, transition to this new life? Yeah, and, and transitions, I think, are a really good word for it. So in Spain, the vast majority of these children uh, come from the north coast of Spain. They're mostly Bosque and Asturian. Um, there's one small group that leaves from, uh, from the south coast. There's about 70, uh, just over 70 students that leave in March of 1937 uh, aboard a ship. 
towards Yalta, and they're constantly in, in fear of the Italian Navy, which is just off the course, uh, off the coast, and which is bombarding uh, Valencia, and that's the port that they they left from. Um, the next month, on the 26th of April, is when the Luftwaffe starts uh, bombing Guernica, right? And this is the cultural capital of of the Basque region. There's there's no military target there. It's it's a it's a it's a fear device, but also practice for the the, the Nazi uh, Air Force. And so that's that's at the that's the point when which the the Bosque in particular say we've we've got to get these children out of here, and so they start mobilizing schools for evacuation, uh, you know, across the French frontier, but then also places uh, like the UK and and Belgium and the Soviet Union and whatnot. And so in June of '37, about 1,500 uh, sail to Leningrad. Uh, September, another thousand roughly. And then October of 38, a full year later, uh, about another 300 uh, leave. So um, all except that first journey go via the North Sea and the Baltic Sea to Leningrad. And that is a horrific journey, right? They're, they're, they're in cargo ships, not passenger ships. Uh, they'll typically go to the coast of France and there they'll be divided to either stay in France or go to, to Southampton in uh, England. Um, or they'll go on to, to Leningrad. And where are and their so, parents? Like what happened to their parents? Yeah. Okay. So the vast majority of the parents are, are staying at home. Um, so they're, they're, they're not orphans. I mean, some of them are, that is that they don't have parents. Their parents have been killed in the war. Um, but they are without parents, the vast majority. There are a few parents that go with them as uh, teachers and childminders and things like that. But the vast majority don't have parents. They typically do have siblings, cousins, classmates. So they're not alone, but they're not with their parents in, in most cases. And I think that probably makes that, that journey even more horrific because the, there's that sense of, of loss, uh, the longing from home, and then just the arduousness of the, of the journey and the, the, you know, being down in the hold of the ship with rats and, and nasty food and, and, you know, Chinese sailors that are scaring the hell out of them. Cause they just watched the, the, the mask of Fu Manchu <laughs> at the theaters. And it's so like, Oh, that's all the Chinese are dangerous. Um, so it was it, in so many ways, it was a traumatic experience. I mean, it's a word that's not really being used, um, but I, it's, it's by, it's definitely a, a, a trauma uh, to them in their, in their very young minds. And so what happens, they get to the Soviet Union, and then how do they deal with now, they, they've survived this, the ones that do survive this journey, they get to the Soviet Union, and then what happens to them? Yeah, well, one, I think I think they're probably just shocked. Um, one boy recounts going and, you know, being told that he's going to the Soviet Union, and all he knew is basically an, an image of, of Siberia, right? It's always cold, and there's bears, and the children must go to school on skis, and he ends up in Leningrad in June. <laughs> and, you know, they're coming down the, the, the gangplank, and the, 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 um, the seaside, the, the the port side is just filled with people. There's bands playing music, you know, the Internationale. Um, there are people waving uh, red flags. The pioneers are there. People have flowers. And they're just stunned. And some of them, even the ones that go to Yalta, they just start crying um, because they, they realize, wow, we're in a place like these people are going to keep us safe um, where they were they were in bomb shelters for for much of the last few months in Spain. And so I think it was a, it was a huge relief to see that 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 welcome that they were getting. But then there's also the the trauma of any displacement that we see with refugees, right? They got to have um, medical checkups, right? These kids are coming with tuberculosis and typhus and all of the kinds of things. So they're being deloused. They're being given showers. Their clothing's being taken away from them. One girl uh, comments on her Bible being taken away from her because um, the, the Basque Communist Party, most of these were, were children from leftist families. The Basque Communist Party was still Catholic, which can, confused the Soviets to no end. They didn't understand how that could happen. Um, some of them had their the the ones who were from kind of wealthier middle class families were having nice clothes taken away from them and given uniforms. The poor and they were horrified by that. Um, the poor students are like, "Oh, we have a uniform." They're really excited about that. Right. And how old are these? How old are these kids? Uh, so they're supposed to be um, between five and twelve years old. But there, there are some on both of the margins, um, families uh, lying about their children's age to get them in there just a little bit younger and a little bit older. But the vast majority are between uh, 5 and 12. And, and of course, there's also probably the issue of language, right? Um, how, did they, how did they handle that? Well, that's, that's very difficult um, because they are coming with some Spanish teachers, educators, um, childminders. 
Um, most of the children, even the Basque children, um, have had uh, Castilian Spanish in school, although they might speak Euskera in the, in the home. So the children can, can uh, speak, but they can't you know, they have no Russian whatsoever. So it's, it's like a lot of um, issues of displacement is trying to get the kids quickly up to scratch in the new language. And so they are, uh, they translate all the Soviet textbooks into Castilian Spanish, uh, but they have kind of primers to teach the little ones their, their ABCs and their, their basic uh, words in both Spanish and Russian. And very quickly, it seems to be catching on. We have letters from uh, 1937 and you can see these children, they have this, this patois, what one scholar is called Rossignol. Uh, it's kind of like Spanglish. Um, and they're, they're writing a sentence, and then they can't think of the Russian word, so they put it in the Spanish. Uh, and they're showing their, their parents, look, you know, here's, here's the Cyrillic alphabet, um, drawing little pictures <laughs> to their parents. And so they're, they're catching on, especially the youngest ones are catching on really, uh, really uh, quickly, which is, you know, what we know from language pedagogy. You know, if you can get them before year eight, then you're in, in good shape. Um, the older ones probably uh, struggled quite a bit more with that. But there's a concerted effort to, to get them at least some basic Russian so they can communicate with the, the young pioneers, for example. Um, and then as you, the years progress, as particularly after um, Franco wins and the Second World War breaks out, they realize these kids are going to be here for quite a while. And they decide, OK, we have to be much more intentional about uh, teaching them Russian uh, so they can integrate into Soviet society better. When they, when they get to the Soviet Union, they're, they're placed in boarding schools. So why, is, why are they placed in these, you know, almost mostly Spanish only, it seems, uh, classes in boarding school as opposed to being in, sent to like foster parents or something like this? And that is a, that is a difference that we see uh, from country to country. In some, there are formal and informal uh, adoptions. There are a couple of these kids that are adopted, but it's a minuscule number. Um, some are sent to camps, quite literally. And the Stoneham camp in England is, is their tent, tents initially before they're shipped out to other places. Um, I think the, the thinking is that um, the Spanish Communist Party, which is, is based in Moscow at, at this point, um, and a lot of Spaniards, uh, communist Spaniards at the common turn, they want to be able to interact with the students on a regular basis. So um, putting them in places together rather than scattering them out through the Soviet Union is really important. The, the initial thought is that they would probably go back to Spain after three or four months. Um, and so, you know, we don't want them dispersed into other families. We want to keep their, their Spanishness intact. And so the boarding school seemed like a good, um, a, a good location, both from the Spanish view and the Soviet view, because the Soviet view also, they don't know about these kids and particularly the adults that come with them. They, you know, there's a little bit of suspiciousness. Some of these kids are anarchists or from anarchist families, and that's obviously uh, a worry to the Soviets. So kind of putting them in these, these um, boarding schools, these institutions is a great place, a great way to surveil, um, but also to have a confined space in which they can be uh, taught and raised in the way that the Soviet Communist Party and the Spanish Communist Party wants without too many of the, the distractions. Now, you know, some of them are, you know, they, they will live in a boarding school. The older ones will live in a boarding school, but then they'll go to school, you know, in the, in the nearby Soviet school. And so they'll be on the, on the third floor and all the others are for the, for the uh, Russian and Soviet kids. But the little ones are usually put in estates out in the country. Um, so they've got, uh, you know, they're in the forest, they've got a river nearby, uh, clean air, all that kind of stuff. And then the school is actually in this, this large estate. Um, those who've been to Moscow and know the the um, embassy of Vietnam, which is just up from the main uh, garf on um, uh, on Bolshaya Perigoska, the uh, that used to be one of the schools. That was house number seven for the the Spanish children, and of course before that it was a noble estate. So you know it, a lot depends on on where they go. There's also a couple of these 22 that are 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 simply um, set aside as uh, sanatoria for the for the ill children. So um, in Yevpatoria, in uh, Crimea, there is one where particularly the kids with tuberculosis go to try to recuperate. Um, so they're, they're, they differ in place. I mean, Moscow, Leningrad, and, and Kiev have the, have the largest numbers of them, um, but they're oftentimes out in the, in the periphery too for the, uh, the younger children, the older children. 
located more towards the city center because then they also have access to things like uh, museums and, and theaters and you know the, the orchestra and all these other things that they can um, use both as educational uh, but also as rec- recreational spaces so you know the, the the initial idea is that you know these kids will be here for who knows six months but the idea is, is that they will eventually go back so the attitude when they when they realize that they are indeed staying in the Soviet Union for who knows how long, then there's has to be a lot of adjustment. And so, you know, the, the Soviets are are now investing in educating them and basically raising some of these kids. So what did they do around this question that a lot of, you know, scholars talk about in the 1930s of, of you know, creating or yeah, creating or educating Soviet people? How did that process work with their own kind of attempts to maintain a Spanishness. Yeah. So I, I spend quite a bit of time on this question in the book, both on the, the educational mission, both in class and out of class, but also the, the position of role models for these children. Uh, and that include that Spanish and Soviet role models. So teachers, you know, the classroom is really weird uh, it, because in the early days, it's a Spanish teacher, but there's a Soviet minder there as well. Um, to make sure that the Spanish teacher is teaching them what they want, although it's not really clear how the Soviet knew what was going on. I mean, Spanish is not a, a language that's being taught at university in the Soviet Union at that point. So, you know, oftentimes it's a it's a student from Argentina that's there. They recruit a bunch of, of French graduate students <laughs> from Moscow to come in. Um, so it's it's really important for them to make sure that the the adults in their lives are good communists. And so at this at this inflection point in 39, when the Second World War breaks out and the Spanish Civil War is lost and the fascists win, um, there's a there's a purge right with a small p of some of the Spanish faculty um, that don't live up to the notion of what a good uh, adult role model should be. And the few cases that we have, you know, a lot of them are because they're illiterate, particularly the the. Um, the young women who kind of take care of them in the in the dormitory spaces. Um, there is political illiteracy. Some are anti-Soviet, but most of them there are a-Soviet. They just don't care about politics. But then we have some more serious concerns um, of things like um, inappropriate sexual behaviors with the students, and we don't know if those are true or not because oftentimes, like there's one man who was um, educated in a church school in the late 19th century. And so they wanted initially to get rid of him for political reasons. Uh, they call him Janus faced. Um, but then there's the sexual charge that's brought up too. And, you know, my sense in that is like, okay, they couldn't get rid of him for this reason. So, you know, let's add on to that. And, you know, the sexual charge is like, that's what's going to get him out of here. So that role modeling is really important. They need to be good Soviets. And the, the Soviets who are who are thrown out of the schools, there's many fewer, um, but they're also for things like tardiness and theft of property. It's, it's not these larger political aims. So in the classroom, um, so I have two separate chapters, one on Abuchini and one on Vaspitania. Uh, so the, the Abuchini, the in the class stuff, they are learning Spanish language, Castilian Spanish language, they're learning Spanish history, uh, Spanish culture, Spanish literature, um, all selected very carefully. So the the Spanish history is is usually you know the the great Spanish heroes of the past who rose up against the you know the barbarian invaders, right? So they're 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 dipping way into the deep past and imagining a Spain that actually frankly didn't exist. Um, but it's it's when the people right rose up. So it, it fits very well within that kind of general Soviet narrative of the people coming together in literature. They, they, they want to find their, their Jack London, right? Kind of their, their fellow traveler. Um, but that's hard because Don Quixote doesn't quite fit and you can't ignore the, the great bard, if you will. Um, huh. yeah, I mean, he's in it. Don Quixote is incredibly popular. Oh yeah, in the, in the absolutely. Game, but maybe, but he doesn't feel, he doesn't fit the socialist realist canon, but you can't, you can't ignore the golden age of, of Spanish literature. Um, so because they don't have many that fit the socialist realist canon, the, the number of Spanish authors they, they do read is much more limited. And then, of course, they're reading it in the Soviet context. So they'll read Don Quixote, for example, uh, and they'll talk about the senores and how they're, how they're abusing the peasants and things like that. So they focus on those things that fit a Soviet narrative. 
um, so and then you know in the in the rest of the classes they're they're learning from the same textbooks that that the Soviet children are. So they're they're uh, mathematics, they're Soviet history for the older kids, they're Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism courses, uh, the short course. Uh, all those things are the same, except you know in the initial years they're learning in Spanish, and then in the later years they're they're learning it more in Russian. So that classroom experience looks a lot like the non-Russian schools in the 1930s as well. So, you know, uh, an Uzbek learning Russian as a second language and then learning other things, at least in theory, learning everything else in Uzbek. And so I use that that model of the non-Russian school as a way to show that this really isn't that extraordinary if we think about it. The Soviets are taking a model they seem is already working with them, this, you know, kind of national informed socialist and content. You can learn this in your national language, but you're learning that Soviet content. The Spaniards are just kind of learning this other bit because they are supposed to be going back home. They need to know their language. They need to know their history. They need to know their culture. And so that sense of Hispanidad is is um, nurtured in the classroom and then certainly by the, the uh, adults that are around them uh, as well. So World War II breaks out and the prospects of them returning to Spain are to zero because of the, the fascist victory in the Civil War. So uh, what was their life like during, how did they experience World War II? And and through through that, an additional issue there is through that experience, how do you understand the war somewhat differently, if at all? Mm, okay, let me let me start with the first one while I think about the second one a little bit more. Um, so first, I think it's, it's important for us to note that these these boarding schools, when they were created, is a really privileged experience for these kids. Like I found only in one year, I found the amount uh, that's being spent per capita, and it's far and above what's being spent for Soviet children. So they're being lavished with all kinds of resources that Soviet children aren't. That changes dramatically during the Second World War. And a lot of them say in their memoirs and in the oral histories, like this is the moment that it became real. This is when we became Soviet because they're loaded on trains and they're evacuated to the East. And some of these journeys take 30 days or more because they're supposed to be evacuated to place X and they get there and the the local party or, or local government won't let them get off the train because they've already got an influx of, of refugees or they just don't want anymore. Um, and so they're pushed further and further and further to the east. And they begin to realize that they have been in a very privileged bubble for a long time because they don't have food. Um, it's really cold in these in these boxcars uh, for those that are, that are um, going deeper into Siberia and a little bit later. But they're being... They're being evacuated almost immediately in uh, in July, June, July of forty uh, one, and so it looks a lot like the stories we've heard from you know Rebecca Manley and others that have, that have talked about World War Two uh, evacuation. It's absolute chaos. Uh, it wasn't pre planned. Uh, many of the kids get lost, and some aren't aren't found. Some of them do pop up in other places. Um, teachers go missing. So it's a second that that process itself is a second trauma. It's like the Absolutely. repeat of yeah. uh, under different conditions of the first journey to the Soviet Union from right. Spain. And I think in in some ways it's even more traumatic because once they got to the Soviet Union, they had those two years of normalcy where you know they didn't have to hear a bomb, they didn't have to hear a gun. They were being treated really well. They were being fed so much. They're running back to their parents like, I wish I could send you some food because we get so much chocolate, we can't eat it all, right? And we get white bread, right? We don't have to eat brown bread, you know, and although they're kind of disgusted by caviar, which I, I sympathize with them because I can't stand it either. <laughs> um, so, you know, having those two years of normalcy and then it happens all again, particularly those in Leningrad, right? That very quickly and the ones in Kiev, that very quickly the war comes to their, to their homes. Um, they're like, oh my God, we have to, we have to live this all over again. And the fear hits them. And I think it's it's probably more traumatic, even though you know they're not leaving their parents uh, in the in the second case during the Second World War, because when they get to their new places in evacuation, they don't have that luxury anymore. They're in buildings that have no heat. They don't have educational materials. It's so frigging cold in that first winter that their their ink is drying in the ink wells. Um, the food situation is so bad that um, many of the children talk about in the memoirs and oral histories of re resorting to theft for um, 
for survival, even though this is one of the, the traits that's trying to be, be um, trained out of them, right? That you just rely on the state and they will provide. Uh, one horrific case, and it, it must be true because I've had three different, three different people have confirmed the same story, that they're in, uh, they're near Saratov, and um, they're so hungry that they had this camel that they used to to get water from the river, and this is blind camel, and it was snowing so so hard that the blind camel couldn't get through the snow to get any grass and just died, and they butchered the camel, and it was the first meat that they'd had in a long time. And one, I'm wondering why there's a camel in Saratov, but <laughs> that's a that's another story. Um, so so it was it was horrific, and and you know some of them. The older ones had already been been transitioning into kind of a, a an adulthood, right? At fourteen, you're you're leaving school, and they don't have these institutions, these these boarding school institutions to evacuate with, and so they're on their own. So this one woman ends up walking all the way to Georgia, and she talks about you know walking over the Caucasus Mountains, um, fearing the the Germans uh, who were there at that point, but also fearing the Red Army soldiers who are kind of leering at her all the time. Um, and she has no shoes anymore by the time she gets there because it's such a long walk. And by the time she finally gets medical atten- attention, she has rocks embedded in the soles of her feet. So, I mean, it's, it's stuff that you just can't, can't quite wrap your head around because it's so horrific. And so, and given this, this, you know, narrative, like what is your, how does this, you know, have you reflect on World War II? I think it brings home to me, like some of the best work on, on World War II that's really about the people less less about the military, which is horrific if you're a soldier too. We all know that. Um, it brings home to me the the chaos and the desperation. You know, and I got a little bit of this in the in the the Sevastopol book as well. You know, people living in the in the bombed out um, bank uh, vault because it's the only building standing in the neighborhood, um, eating dolphin, trying to survive. Um, you get a sense of this this desperation and. It truly, I, I think for me, this this brings home the notion of the people's war really well. And I'm not obviously not the first scholar who's done this, right? But I think it adds to that that even this really privileged uh, group of children has to go through some of the worst conditions that one could imagine, and that they are children. Um, to me, that that hits home a little bit more because you know, adult can can kind of take care of themselves in some instances, but how's a seven-year-old going to do this if they don't have people looking out for them? And with so many of their, the adults in their lives in the schools being taken to, to the, the front to fight or to the factory to work, the student to faculty ratio changes dramatically. Um, you know, now it's, it's much more like a, a Soviet school uh, in that case where, you know, the, the, the faculty to staff ratio was much, much higher than Soviet schools until this moment when, you know, all bodies to the front, all adults to the front, and these ki- kids are left without supervision. And one of the things that the, the, both the Soviet and Spanish adults uh, talk about during the World War II evacuation is, you know, all the good stuff that we had done to try to create this, these notions of hygiene, respect for elders, of, of uh, self-sacrifice, of camaraderie, that's really breaking down during the war to some degree because of the lack of, of um, adult supervision. Um, and this is, this is why the, initially the, the, the head of the Spanish Communist Party in uh, 44 starts um, haranguing Moscow officials to, to bring them back to Moscow. It's like, we need to have more oversight because the Spanish Communist Party, as well as, as Narcomporos, are sending out, um, what do we want to call them? Uh, sending out people to survey the conditions in these homes spread throughout, you know, from Samarkand to Saratov. And the reports coming back typically are not very flattering. And so they think, okay, if we can bring them back to Moscow, we can have more supervision by both communist parties, more adults, but also the resources of the capital, because, you know, most of your listeners will know this, but all resources flow to Moscow. Uh, And so they'll have those resources and be able to to be raised in a, in a more uh, um, sympathetic, empathetic way so that they can uh, achieve whatever their, their uh, future holds for them. You know, in thinking about their, their, their journey um, and in here, you know, this goes to studying youth and, and always seeing them is this kind of this transitional periods. Um, They, their, their childhood is, 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 
with this traumatic episode of leaving Spain during experiencing the war and leaving Spain. And then they're, you know, entering into whether it's, you know, young adulthood or, or adulthood during World War II uh, as another one of these experiences. And, and then I would, I would have to say, you know, based on what you're saying is that this is when they actually become in a weird way, their refugeedom becomes normalized. Uh, and 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 worse condition in worse conditions than their refugee them before the war breaks out. Um, so how does this like in terms of them becoming adults? Now they are this quasi form of, you know, for lack of better terms, Soviet people, but still now they're kind of exiles. What is their life like coming out of the war as young adults or as adults? Yeah, so I, I I build a little bit on on Julie de Graffenried's notion of the the sacrificing childhood of World War II, right? They learn a lot of skills. You know, it's a traumatic experience, but they learn a lot of skills, and they have to grow up very quickly and learn how to take care of themselves, but also labor skills. And some of this actually starts before the war comes to the Soviet Union. So in in uh, 1940, so we already have the the Winter War going on, and that's a that's a pretty big. Uh, turning point. Anne Lifshitz has, has written about this, how 1939 is in some ways more important than 1941 as far as education goes. Um, so in 1940, they started two schools for, for Spanish youth. So these were kids who had kind of aged out of the boarding school. So they're over 14. Um, they don't show particular aptitude for school work. So they're not going into higher education. And so they create these separate, two separate schools, one in Moscow and one in Leningrad, where they're, they're supposed to go to school half day and, and work in a factory half day to help them ease that transition into the Soviet life that they're going to have to live for the foreseeable future, right? They didn't know at this point that World War II was going to be coming to, to the the Soviet Union. Um, that once the invasion did happen in in June '41, both those schools were were closed, and um, the older uh, teens were immediately sent to uh, factory uh, labor. Some some to farms, but the vast majority to to factory labor. So, as they're leaving schools, um, either during or after the war. For me, I see this as a um, a dividing point for these Spanish refugee children because the youngest children, they go back to Moscow in 44. They resume school and their path is towards higher education, whether going to MGU for you know their doctorates uh, or they're going to a technical school for nursing or agronomy or something like that. Um, their education continues at least through you know age 14 and then somewhat to higher education for those who came to the soviet union older right so maybe they were 12 one of the older kids maybe they were 12 when they came in 1937 they're 14 1939 they go to one of these youth schools so during the war they are they're separate they don't have that institution um looking out for them in the same way. Now, even when they do go to, to factories, they they have a, a supervision and a set of privileges that other Russian or Soviet workers do not. So one of the things that they quickly realized is that when these, when these Spaniards go into the factory, uh, they're at a disadvantage based on the salaries they're getting. So even if they're getting the same salaries as a Soviet worker, those Soviet workers probably are in a two or three generation household that is pooling their resources. And these children don't have that. So they're living in a dormitory and they start getting a stipend. And those stipends become a point of contention between Soviet workers and Spanish workers. And so there is still that sense of privilege, but there are also um, different... Um, directives coming from Moscow to the various uh, ministries that they need to look out for these kids. So they're getting shoes, they're getting clothes, they're getting stipends. Sometimes they're getting extra rations. They have um, additional language training in many cases um, because if they were coming at 12 and then just three years later, they're popping into the factory, their Russian skills aren't that great. They have trouble uh, reading the machine uh, machine manuals and talking to their compatriots and things like that. So there's a, I think there's a really um, quite a big divergence between the oldest of the Spaniards and the youngest of the Spaniards um, at this point. Um, unfortunately, the way that uh, the oral histories have been collected is we don't 
many of them don't tell us who the the person being interviewed is and sometimes don't even give us any biographical information so we don't know in what year were they born and for me that's that's absolutely key to to looking at this in a, in a much kind of closer analytical way uh, i would love to have just a database <laughs> of all of these and their their birth dates and when they came and and their their trajectories um, because i think then we could say a lot more about to what degree the the longevity within the boarding schools themselves had to do with their future success in life. My my guess is those who were in the boarding schools for longer probably had much more successful careers. Now, before before the war and into the war and then immediately after, you know, a lot of I mean, I know this just from the experiences of um, foreign communists, just you know, connected to the Comintern, that they they. On the one hand, they're communists, but on the other hand, there's a lot of xenophobia and spy mania and, you know, general fear and suspicion to foreigners. Do do any of these these kids experience any of that, even even into their young adult or adult years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. Um, so obviously, the the heterogeneity, the multicultural common turn comes under very severe attack, both in the late 30s and obviously into the into the early 40s as well. These children experience it most directly when a teacher disappears, right? So we have some Hungarians, for example, who are, who are mentioned by name, um, who they just disappear, and then word gets back to them um, that they've been purged. Um, and so the, the kids have a sense that this is going on. Um, some of their, their Spanish teachers um, are also being purged, but it's, it's not in the same way that the, that the, um, the common turn purges are, are going on at the same time. So they know that it's there and it does affect their lives, but not nearly as directly. Uh, there are some uh, Spanish, I won't call it research, but um, some Spanish uh, writers who claim that you know during the war all the Spaniards are simply sent to the gulag? There's zero evidence for this whatsoever. Um, there are some Spanish adults, but hardly any of these kids are. Um, I mean, you could you could count them on two hands the number are sent to gulag, and of course, as we know, the gulag is something of a revolving door, and, and so they 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 come back into into Soviet society. So they are experiencing things like uh, like the purges and the terror, but kind of from a from a distance. Um, especially the youngest ones really don't know what's going on and they're not being told directly, um, at least by their, their Soviet teachers. Um, I'm, I'm guessing some of their Spanish teachers are because some of the Spanish teachers are not um, very well disposed to the Soviet Union. And so until they're re removed from the houses, um, I, I would imagine that some of these kids do hear about um, some of the horrors that are happening there, particularly in the, in the late 30s. And what about after the war, with especially with the Cold War starting to ramp up? Yeah, so this is where it's it's a little bit harder to follow because one, so many of them are aging out of the boarding schools that they don't appear in these records. Their archival it, footprint, right? Exactly, and and even even the archival footprint of the schools that continue to exist is is diminishing. Uh, it's still there, uh, but we have different types of resources. So. Um, they have these characterizations that they write of the, the kids every once in a while, particularly when they they get to age 14 or grade seven, and they're trying to think of what, the, what their future is. They write this um, short characterization, you know, about their, their academic aptitudes, their political uh, views, their health. And then they say, okay, you know, this kid should go to, to higher education. This one should go to factory labor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so after the war, we, we don't know as much about the ones who had kind of gone into Soviet society and how they experienced it. They certainly would have experienced it more because they're around more Soviets who are being caught up in, in various uh, different operations. Um, the ones still within the boarding school, um, they don't seem to be seeing it. So one of the things that I really didn't find much evidence in, for example, is the Zhdan of Shina. The the students don't seem to be responding. Obviously, you know, their curriculum is changing and what they can watch and, and read is changing. But I don't recall anything where where the kids are reflecting uh, on that or the teachers are saying, oh, my God, you know, we need to protect him uh, from, you know, the kowtowing to the West. Uh, so their curriculum is changing, but they I don't think I don't get a sense that they understand why it's changing. 
And even in the oral histories, which I'm, I'm assuming were done when they were older, they don't reflect on life. Um, not, not in the ways that I would like to. <laughs> so the, you know, the, the first, the first oral history project is being done in the mid to late eighties by actually one of the, the Soviet, or excuse me, Spanish adults who went with him, a man named Enrique Zafra. And so he was one of the teachers in one of the schools. And, you know, so now you're 50 years removed from when you were five, six, seven years old. And I did this with my students the other day. I, I had them take a moment to write down, uh, something that they remember very vividly from when they were six years old. And it, it made my point is that this is really hard to uncover the more prosaic moments in life, right? So they they can recall the, you know, the dead camel and the freezing and all that kind of stuff or that teacher that they really, really loved from first grade. But the kind of day to day stuff um, that's not found in the in the oral history. Right. And I, I was really most interested in kind of the process of raising these children as what I end up calling uh, hybrid Hispano-Soviets. Um, and so the the education, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you doing? That doesn't really appear in the in the oral histories. And so we have to rely on the Soviet gaze and the adult Soviet gaze uh, for much of that. And so there is still this kind of gray area in the middle. We kind of know what the Soviet intentions were. We know what they were doing. And then children's memories, 50, 60, 70 years later, and it's hard to match up the intention um, from one side and how it was understood and lived by the children at that moment. So in this, this is a problem of the history of childhood. Like when I, when I decided to retrain from an urban historian into a history of childhood, and there's no relation whatsoever between those two. I started reading the literature. I was like, wow, did I make a good choice? Because <laughs> there are a lot of things that I just can't do because the adult gaze is everywhere. And uh, the, the, the immediacy that we would like, you know, that, that child who keeps a daily diary, like that just doesn't exist. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of unknown. So, you know, and, and I asked this about World War II, but I want you to reflect on on Stalinism in general because this is the period of like the high Stalinist. Um, having done this this research on these these Spanish kids, how does that inform how you understand that period different than say how you did before? Like, what 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 light did it shed on it? I think in some ways it strengthens some of the notions that I was I was thinking about in the Sevastopol book in that patriotism is really huge. So in, in Sevastopol, it's about the built space and creating that as as much a Russian pre-revolutionary space as it is a Soviet space with monuments, memorials, uh, the names of streets and squares and all that kind of stuff. These children are learning that same kind of patriotic message uh, of the motherland um, in, in what they're reading, the heroes that come to see them in their boarding schools. So Chikalov, the great, um, you know, aviator, aviator explorer, he's, he's very frequent uh, visitor in their home. Uh, after the war, we see a lot more soldiers, uh, veterans uh, coming to the, the homes to talk to the children. So this notion of patriotism, but also a du dual patriotism, Right. The, the, the children talk about it as dos patrias, right? the two homelands. Uh, and that's very conscious of the Soviets to try to create that dual patriotism. And I think that's something that is that is being um, really um, instilled in both children and adults, late 30s, but certainly after the war in high Stalinism, that, that of the motherland. Um, I think maybe one of the distinctions here is that, you know, we get with Stalin's great speech talking about the Russians being first among equals. That doesn't, that doesn't filter in in the same ways because this is a, a Spanish a world in a lot of ways. Were you surprised by this duel? This and not not the fact that the students felt this, but that it was actually supported and instilled by the, you know, education system. I, I, I'm a bit struck by that, especially considering the period. Right. Yeah. Well, initially, I absolutely was because you know you were reading the same thing I was reading. It's like this is something we don't do, right? <laughs> we don't want you having an affinity with another country. I mean, look what happened to the poor, poor, poor poles, for example, when they came, or the Koreans, or whatnot. Um, so I think there's a couple distinctions here because we we do know there's a very little bit of work on um, Spanish children uh, in the Soviet Union in, in boarding schools, and they're just treated horribly. 
Um, and so one of the distinctions I try to make, um, and I would love to do it more comparatively, is that one, the, the children from contiguous countries, so Koreans or, or Poles, right, that's, that's, a, that's a borderland and that's a dangerous borderland. And for the Poles, you know, they're also seen as kind of being an enemy nation, particularly during the war. The Spaniards are much further away, so there isn't that, that fear of the, the borderland. But they're all, these are also little heroes, and this is what they they often call them. They're the the front line, or their parents are the front line in the defense against fascism, right? And the Spanish Civil War is such an important um, moment in the history of the left, right? It's like who is rising up against fascism? It's not democracies, right? It's the communist countries and the and the communist parties in these democracies that are doing the the heavy work, and so. You know, it took me a little bit to figure this out because like you, I was like, this, this can't be, I'm, I'm reading this wrong. Uh, but then when I started sitting back and thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, it does fit with a kind of non-Russian Soviet education, but this instilling of a deep patriotism is something different than just allowing an Uzbek to read Uzbek literature. It is a true love for and support for another country um, because the notion from from day one is these, these children were going to go back, and in some ways they're going to defeat fascism or replace fascism. I think that allowed or caused the Soviet educators to think about them in a different way and raise them with this deep love and respect and desire to return uh, to their homeland someday, even though that was <laughs> that was long delayed. And finally. Um... What is the, I mean, you mentioned there were these oral, oral histories taken in the 80s, but what, what is the, what are the, the kind of broad strokes memory of, of these people and their experience? Yeah. Uh, you mean of them themselves? Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking is, yeah, on the one hand, how do they reflect, like in the, as best, as best you can get from the materials you have, how do they reflect on their experience? But also the the kind of larger memory of them, you know, that you find in, in other cases of, of you know, a, a kind of collective memory, let's say, of, of, of them. So first, let me take their remembrance of their time. And this is, this is kind of the first, wow, am I really reading this correctly moment, is when I started dipping into these oral histories to see what had been done, is overwhelmingly, yes, there are some exceptions, but overwhelmingly, a very positive view of their time in the Soviet Union. Um, again, you know, they they don't shy away from talking about you know how terrible the the war years were, uh, World War II. Um, but in the end, and you know the trauma of separation from parents and whatnot. But then they always come back and say, "But we were treated so well," and especially the. I'm sorry, just to be clear, do they return to Spain, or is this did they live out the rest of their lives in the Soviet Union? Yes and yes. So um, already in the in the late 40s, uh, Stalin and Franco are having discussions about these children because Franco wanted them back immediately. He calls them the stolen children. Um, and the Spanish Communist Party says, in no way are they going back to Franco Spain. And so by the time we get to the 50s, after Stalin dies, uh, kind of starting 56 to 59, uh, roughly about a half of them go back to Spain, but within a matter of months, about half of that half return to the Soviet Union because they realize that in a lot of ways they're more Soviet than they are Spanish. So you know they speak Spanish with an accent. Um, they don't know the the day to day culture, but particularly for for the now women. They've been raised in a society that at least gives lip service to gender equality, right? That they can they can they can be a doctor, they can be an engineer, and many of them are. And they go back to Spain, which is overwhelming. Not only is it fascist, but it's it's the the misogyny and the patriarchy of the Catholic Church that says, you know, have kids and stay in the kitchen, or maybe be a secretary at best. And so the the women are like, whoa, this is. Okay, this is what we were be, being told it was, and they and they return uh, relatively quickly. So, so the memories, you know, there are different memories of that experience, but overwhelmingly they are they're quite positive because of all the opportunities that the Soviet Union gave them, particularly in education and then in in skills uh, skills training. There's a separate issue when they return because um, a lot of them marry Soviet citizens. 
And so upon return, uh, let me make sure I get this right. Women can return, but not Spanish women can return, but they cannot return with their Soviet husbands. So Soviet men can't go back. The inverse is, tr is, is true that the, uh, the Spanish men can take their Soviet wives with them. So, you know, you may be leaving home, you're leaving behind your husband, maybe your, your children as well. You're leaving your community, your apartment block, your coworkers. So it's, it's a second loss. And because a lot of these, the families that they're returning to are being surveilled by uh, the Frank, Francoist police, uh, these children, are, well, I can't call them children anymore. These returnees are given special passports, bright yellow passports that marks them immediately as an other. And so it's quite dangerous, or many, many of the families perceive their presence as dangerous. And so it just doesn't feel comfortable or familiar to them. And so a lot of them do in the end uh, return to Spain, or excuse me, to the Soviet Union. Some will go elsewhere. You know, their parents had, had since immigrated to France, and so they go to France. Uh, some of them go to, to Mexico, where the Mexican government was dealing quite nicely with a very small number uh, of students for a small number of years in the 40s, uh, much like the, the Soviet Union was. So they do go elsewhere, some even coming to the United States. Um, but yeah, they're, they quickly realize that Spain is not it's not home for, for many of them anymore. The Soviet Union is home. Um, and so the kind of the, the larger memory, I, I, I was struck every time I would go back to, to Moscow or, or when I was going and working in Spain, you know, people would ask me, what project are you doing? And I'd talk about, I was like, oh, well, I remember Jose, right? Or my grandmother was friends with, and the number of people that have a very vivid memory of these children, to some degree, you know, for the, the ones who are old enough to experience that moment themselves, right? The press in 1936 in, in the Soviet Union, I mean, they're talking about the Spanish Civil War every day. It's front page news. And these children are front page news, 37, 38, and then they kind of disappear after that. But then they pop up in pop culture as well. You know, in the film, film Zerkula, um, there's, a, there's one of these um, Spanish refugee children. Uh, in there. And so they have these moments where they appear, and particularly in, in Moscow, where they're congregated, there's actually a, a place called the Centro Español in, uh, in Moscow that becomes a, uh, a second, third generation home for uh, Hispano Soviets. So they can take their children there to learn Spanish and they dance flamenco and they have their, their strong coffee and right, all those kind of things. Uh, and so it still serves as kind of a hub for the the, the much smaller number of, of former Ninos who survive, but then also their their descendants. So in Moscow, I think the the memory is a little bit stronger perhaps than in some other places because more more Soviet or excuse me now Russian citizens have had uh, direct experience uh, with them. That was Carl Qualls. Carl Qualls is the John B. Parsons Chair in Liberal Arts and Sciences and Professor of History at Dickerson College. He's the author of From Ruins to Reconstruction, Urban Identity in Soviet Sevastopol After World War II. His new book is Stalin's Niños, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 1951, published by the University of Toronto Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Here's a, story, a song about Franco Spain today. It's called Spanish Lament. Sweet melody, bitter words. Oh, say, do you remember 25 years ago? They fought the fascist army. They fought the fascist foe. Do you remember Franco? 
Hitler's old ally. He butchered Spain's democracy. Half a million free men died. Aye, 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 aye. Did you wonder why? Did you ever pause and cry? And don't forget the churches and the sad role that they played. They crucified their people and worked the devil's trade. But now the wounds are healing with the passing on of time. So we send them planes and rifles and recognize their crime. I, 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 did you wonder why? Did you ever pause and cry? So spend your tourist dollars and turn your heads away. Forget about the slaughter. It's the price we all must.